Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know some of you love Susan Stamberg's cranberry relish recipe, which she shares on NPR every year before Thanksgiving. There are others who wouldn't dare serve that Pepto-Pink condiment at their Thanksgiving table. Of course, the easiest way is to buy it in the can. Now, don't judge. Could it actually taste better than homemade? Coming up, we'll learn about an effort to revive Connecticut's cranberry capital. Keith Bishop of Bishop's Orchard joins us later this hour. But first, this year women made headlines in Connecticut and across the country after gaining seats in a number of elected offices. Some were even elected to seats historically held by men. Vi Lyles is among the historic wins. She's the first African-American woman to be elected mayor in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today we explore why more women are running for office and we'll ask, what does it take? Who are the new women who've been elected to seats in your town? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, our first guest runs a program at Yale University where women, no matter their party affiliation, can learn what it takes to run a campaign. On the phone with us is Patty Russo, Executive Director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale. Patty, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. I'm thrilled to be here. So first off, for listeners who may not have heard about the Women's Campaign School, tell us about the program. The program is a five-day intensive at Yale Law School. Uh, It will be held next year, uh, the week of June 11th. It is a nonpartisan, issue-neutral political campaign training program for women interested in running for public office as well as women interested in campaign management. Now, I mentioned your executive director. How long has this program been around? We will be celebrating our 24th year in 2018. Uh, we know that the 26, uh, 20, 2016 elections uh, were memorable yes. for many different reasons. What yes. did you see in terms of interest in the Women's Campaign School after the election? Well, the interest started soaring, Lucy, immediately following the results of the November 2016 election. And then it really started to catapult after the Global Women's March in January of 2017 this year. An inordinate number of women called us, emailed us, and said, basically, I'm mad, I marched, I want to run for office. We started returning those calls and responding to those emails and discovered that one-third of the women who were interested in running weren't even registered to vote, Mm. that another third were registered to vote but hadn't voted in the November 2016 election because they said, well, the two candidates were so similar I couldn't make up my mind. But they were mad now, and they marched, (laughs) and they wanted to run for office. So two-thirds of the women who reached out to us, Lucy, weren't appropriate for a five-day intensive. And so that's why we created our new initiative uh, this year, the Women's Campaign School at Yale, The Basics, which is a one-day training uh, to help women successfully and effectively launch their political careers. You said interest was soaring. How many seats do you normally have at the summer session, and how many applications were you getting? At the, uh, at the summer session, our max is 80, and uh, I have to say the past two years, 
we accepted 80, and all 80 uh, arrived. You know, mm-hmm. all 80 uh, took the spots. And, of course, last year, this past year, rather, we saw an, you know, a close to 25% increase mm-hmm. in, in applications uh, as a result, again, of this women, you know, have this, having this newly discovered passion for politics. So mm-hmm. it's really exciting. So walk us through some of the uh, the candidates, so to speak, that get accepted into your program. Tell us about a little bit about their backgrounds. You mentioned that um, the result of the 2016 presidential elections energized some of them. But we know um, all politics are local in a way. And how do uh, you get people interested to start at that, that municipal level before they, they look to, to, to Congress or other seats? Well, um, I do a lot of engagements throughout the year, just to women's groups and other groups, and, and just getting women to think about the possibility of running. You know, there's a very uh, popular statistic out there that says that women need to be asked at least three times before they even think about running for office, whereas men don't need that push. You know, they, they pretty much self-identify. And so the more we're able to inspire more women to get into the political pipeline and take the risk and run um, and train them well, thus skewing them for success, the more women will be able to um, to get running and winning sooner versus later. Mm-hmm. Are they uh, women of diverse backgrounds that are at, at the Women Campaign School? Very, very diverse, I have to say. Uh, the, the majority of the women who attend our school are women of color. I'm really proud of that. Um, and they come from all walks of life. Many, the majority of them have had, a, you know, major political experience. They've been leaders in their communities. Uh, they have run for local office and served locally and are now preparing for that next step, be it state, state rep, state senate, Congress. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, United Mm -hmm. States Senator from New York, is a graduate of our school, as is our own Elizabeth Esty uh, from the 5th Congressional District here in uh, Connecticut. She actually attended the school along with her daughter, Sarah, uh, who was going to be her campaign manager uh, when she was running for office at the time. Mm -hmm. And former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords of Arizona is not only a graduate of our school, but she also served on our board for many years. Mm -hmm. Is there a cost, Patty, for people who are accepted? I'm sorry? Is there a cost to once you're accepted into the Women's Campaign School? Yes, okay. yes, yes. The tuition for the week, which includes the program and most meals, is $1,800 for the week. Now, uh, you met, said something earlier that you said women have to be asked three times uh, before oh. they <laughs> say, you know what, I'm going to run for a seat. What are some of the barriers? What are some of the questions women are mulling over before they take that step? They uh, they think about the the amount of time it's going to take to run. They think about the money. I mean, when you run for United States Senate, the kind of minimum amount you're going to need to raise is ten million dollars. And so, when women think about even for a local seat, twenty five thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, you know, these numbers are ridiculous. You know. Uh, but but it's the reality of the situation. That's just why we spend an entire day 
at our five-day intensive talking about effective and successful fundraising techniques. So I want to say that the number one barrier to women not running skill is fundraising, you know, their ability to raise money. Uh, And just, again, thinking about work-life balance, which, again, men traditionally don't need to think about, but women do. What kind of impact is this going to have on my life, on my family, uh, and, you know, how am I going to be able to work this all out? Now, just yesterday, Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman, she's one of the most well-known female politicians in Connecticut, she announced that she will not be running for governor in 2018. There's a lot of speculation. Here's a, a clip of that announcement. I, I, I love the state. I love this. I, lo- I love my job now, but um, it, it, it's a hard decision to make, but it's my family. And you hear her talking about uh, her family as one of the reasons that she felt like she wasn't going to uh, run for governor. You just mentioned uh, Patty Russo, again, executive director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale, that work-life balance can be challenging. Here's someone, though, uh, Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman. You know, she's had a long career, I think more than 30 years. Uh, mm-hmm. Can we? Can you walk us through? I know you've been doing uh, this work and been, inter- you know, been involved with campaigns and politics uh, for many years. Walk us through uh, the how the climate has changed for someone like Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman, uh, who uh, started out in politics more than 30 years ago, and what the climate is today. Well, Nancy, uh, number one, is one of our former presidents of our board of the Women's Campaign School at Yale, so she is a dear friend. She's been an extraordinary role model for all women uh, in Connecticut and the nation. Uh, She's just served so uh, in such an exemplary fashion in everything that she's done. I've known Nancy since she was a state rep and then moved on to controller, and she's just been an extraordinary lieutenant governor uh, for our state. I'm just so proud and grateful to know her. And knowing Nancy the way I do, I don't want to out her, but I can't imagine Nancy not continuing to inspire women to get into the, the pipeline and take the risk the way that she did. This is where we live. Today we're talking about the number of women who are seeking elected offices in local and state government, both here in Connecticut and nationally. Are you one of them? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, one of the women who was elected to municipal government uh, just in the elections a couple weeks ago, a mayor to be exact, is Mayor Ellen Zappo-Sasu in Bristol. She joins us now by phone. Uh, Welcome to the show, Mayor. Good morning. So how does it feel to be elected Bristol's first female mayor? It's a great feeling, and I think uh, a lot of it is in due in large part to the large amount of support that we received from women and moms and people um, that were set up with what happened both in 2016. Oh, Mayor Zapasasu, are you there? Oh, it looks like we may have uh, uh, lost her. Oh, Mayor, are you there? I am. Oh, you just, you just, uh, we dropped, the call dropped for a little bit. Uh, so if you want to restart about, you were saying uh, as the first female uh, to be elected, first woman to be elected uh, as mayor of Bristol, uh, the, the feeling of that and who you heard from in your campaign. We had many people, both men and women, who were very concerned after the 2016 election. They were also concerned because in Bristol in 2015, I had actually lost to my opponent 
by about 100 votes. So we had been building to a crescendo about change and the empowerment that people felt after feeling helpless with two elections that they felt should have gone the other way in some degree definitely powered people's involvement and activism. And we had a lot of new faces at headquarters. We had a lot of social media warriors getting online and and expressing their opinions that we'd never seen before. And it really definitely galvanized, I think, the local community to get involved in a local election where in the past they had not. Now, on the phone with us is Patty Russo, executive director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale. Uh, Mayor, I'm not sure if you were able to hear all of that conversation, but she was talking about um, some of the barriers of why uh, women may uh, may hesitate before running. Uh, you mentioned that this is not the first time you ran for mayor uh, in Bristol. Uh, what were some of the challenges and questions that you asked before running that first time? Mayor, can you hear me? Go ahead, Mayor. When I ran the first time for city council, the youngest of my three children was only six months old. And it really shocked me to have people say, you know, are you going to be able to do this? You know, and the implication was is that I was not a great mother if I was going to actually take on a role in city government. And, it, you know, I had colleagues who had children, you know, close to the same age, and nobody was asking them that question. So I think moms in general, if they do have children are interested in public service, feel the guilt that maybe this is something they should either, quote, wait to do, or that it's not their turn, or that it's not time yet. And, and that, to me, is, from a local perspective, the biggest barrier. People feel as if they're being judged because they're taking this on when they have other responsibilities at home. Uh, Mayor, there, were also, there was also controversy surrounding formal Bristol Mayor Ken Cocaine. He was censured by his own party for alleged sexual harassment and dishonesty. How much did that play into the campaign in terms of what you're hearing from uh, town residents in Bristol about, you know, just uh, enough is enough? They wanted change? I'm just curious what your thoughts were. Yes, that definitely played into it. The, the level of... Um rancor and, you know, the lack of bipartisanship. He was actually censured twice within the space of a year by the city council, which was comprised of Republicans and Democrats. And both times it was unanimous because it just was not something that anybody felt was appropriate. It shifted the focus away from our very significant public policy issues and it distracted everybody from what the city government should be doing. So I definitely believe that people said enough is enough and let's take change and let's make it happen. And then, as I mentioned, they actually came out and engaged actively at headquarters, on social media, at the polls, going door to door, and they actually helped get that result. That's Mayor Ellen Zappo-Sasu, the new mayor of Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, Mayor, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I wanted to go back to Patty Russo before we take a call, executive director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale. You know, she mentioned the role of social media. I'm just curious in terms of of when uh, candidates, um, you know, once once women decide they want to run. I'm just curious with the the years you've been doing this, uh, talking about the role of social media and how it can help or hurt a campaign, Patty. I want to speak to, before we get into that conversation, Lucy, I just want to talk about the mayor, some of the mayor's comments that she made, uh, you know, what we have found that when women run and lose that first time, if they, want, if they run again, there's a 90% chance that they will, they will win. So she is a perfect example of that. 
and that oftentimes our society are not crazy about it when women are running. They don't. They really don't know how to deal with women as candidates. Of course, we're out to change all that, but they love it when women are in office. They love it when women serve. When they eventually, you know, are able to legislate or run a, a city or a state. So I just find that fascinating. Uh, I think that the um, that social media has just exploded. I think it has been so positive uh, for women interested in taking the leap and the lead and in running for public office. Uh, it's really changed the whole attitude in our society and in our country. Uh, with regard to women uh, running. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the phone with us, Patty Russo, Executive Director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale. Today we're talking about women in politics. We just heard from uh, the newly elected mayor in Bristol, uh, Mayor Ellen Zappo-Sasu. And coming up, we're going to hear from New Britain's Republican Mayor Aaron Stewart, uh, who just won a third term. And we're going to continue to talk about what's prompting more women to run, not only in Connecticut, but nationwide. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We'll take your calls right after this short break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the women who run for political office. With us from Yale University Studios now in New Haven is Patty Russo, Executive Director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale. Now here in Connecticut, women make up 28% of the General Assembly, and there are only 105 women who hold seats in the United States Congress. Municipal elections matter just as much. Before the break, we heard from the new mayor in Bristol, uh, Mayor Ellen Zappo-Sasu. On the phone with us now is Erin Stewart. She's a young woman, a Republican woman, who just won her third term as mayor of New Britain. Mayor Stewart, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. Third time's a charm, right? (laughs) (laughs) So congratulations to you. And we wanted to to learn a little bit of your backstory, Mayor Stewart, uh, because we're talking about uh, more women today are showing interest in running and what it takes uh, to uh, run a successful campaign. What inspired you to run, Mayor Stewart? Well, it was a, a very interesting story that I, I have to tell. I was 26 years old when I decided to run for mayor. Um, but it was prior to that, civic involvement was always a cornerstone of what my family had taught me, um, to always give back to the community that gave so much to you. Um, it was no secret my family has been involved in the political world um, on both the Democrats and the Republican side. Uh, so it was always something that I kind of grew up around. Um, but it wasn't until I started working for a former congresswoman and Nancy Johnson, that I really thought that maybe politics was where where I really felt that I could best serve. So at 26 years old, I decided to take a leap of faith uh, and run for mayor of, of the city of New Britain. And uh, I won by 1,111 votes that year. <laughs> now, we know that uh, your father was a former mayor of New Britain. So maybe that, that first campaign, you, you had that name recognition in town, but now it's your third term. So you're running on uh, the work that you're doing uh, as mayor. You know, what lessons did you learn from your father? And I'm just curious about now that you're in this position uh, for a third term, you know, where you see your leadership going? 
Sure. So uh, like any father and, and daughter relationship, uh, my father and I are no different. Um, I, I watched him with inspiration, but uh, usually daughters like to do things a little bit differently than their dads. <laughs> and, and I still I, I do that to this day. Um, but it was um, he got elected when I was a junior at New Burton High School. So as you can imagine, being a junior in high school and having your father as mayor is not necessarily um, uh, a good thing. <laughs> uh, so I didn't really want much to do with politics when my dad was involved, as I found myself watching a lot of what uh, he was dealing with. Um, but, you know, when I got to make a name for myself, uh, that really that really did a lot um, for, for me uh, creating my own identity away from my father, but in the spirit of him in public service. Uh, and I still have a lot of a lot of pride in that. My first term uh, was very interesting. I took over a city that was on the brink of bankruptcy. We had a $30 million operating deficit, and I knew that my main focus when, my, when I first became mayor needed to be the finances of the city of New Britain and turning those around. Uh, and four years later, we have a $15 million rainy day fund. So I'm, I'm very proud of the work that, that we were able to accomplish there. My second term was built all around planning, planning for the future, uh, creating lots of, of documents laying out and mapping a future for the city of New Britain. So now in my third term, uh, I say this is the term to implement. Uh, a lot of projects are underway, uh, but I look forward to many, many development projects coming down the, the pipeline and also um, projects that aim at increasing the quality of life in our city. I understand that um, you've tried to stress bipartisanship in your city uh, this time around. Uh, the council um, holds, uh, the Democrats hold a nine to six edge. Do you think you'll still be able to, to uh, have that bipartisanship that you've strived for the last two terms? Yeah, that's the exact same makeup of the council when I when I became mayor in 2013. So it's nothing new to me. Uh, we've had such strong relationships across the aisle, um, just working across the board for the last four years, very different than what the city has seen in the past. We kind of removed politics from the equation. Um, I'm not interested in going back to that. I don't care about someone's party affiliation. I work with them if they have a good heart and their best interests are in the city of New Britain. I want to work with them. Um, and I don't judge people based off of a letter that's placed in front of their name. Uh, I look forward to getting to know a lot of our new council members. We have a lot of new people who uh, have never served before, which is also a great thing, too. It's showing that there's new people, different people who are wanting to enter into this political realm, um, to two of which are women on the council who have never served before. So I'm very looking, I'm looking forward to getting to know them uh, as well. Now, uh, you were elected first time at 26. You're now 30. Uh, do you ever encounter residents in, in your city who, because you're a young woman, that they don't take you seriously? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I think that's the reality that, that I face. You know, I, listen, I got a double-edged sword here. It's like I'm a young woman in a Republican. So it's like <laughs> I get it from, from all angles. Uh, but uh, I think when I when I first ran, um, it was something that I heard all the time. You're too young. You don't know enough about anything. Um, how can you make decisions that, you know, being so, so young? Um, but I think four years later, I've certainly proved a lot of those people wrong. And, and, and I don't think that um, while some people still may look at me as being, you know, a young woman, I think that my track record has proven uh, and has shown people that... Um, 
that I am capable of, of doing the job and doing it well. Uh, unfortunately, those stereotypes do still exist. Uh, and unfortunately, I have to work twice as hard to, to defeat them. <laughs> Now, Mayor Stewart, you mentioned that some people see that you're the fact that you're a woman, also Republican, uh, is not, uh, you know, they're not advantageous. Uh, do you feel like uh, what the climate in Washington uh, hurts the fact that you're a registered Republican? Uh, in Connecticut, yes, mm-hmm. there's no doubt about that. Um, but I don't, I don't run from that. Um, I kind of take it as it is. Uh, I don't agree with the things that are are happening in Washington. I don't agree with you know, uh, the the climate, the the very polarized political climate that has been set there. That's not how that's not how I, I function. Um, you know, I'm a Republican because my my values and my my financial, uh, you know, uh, I guess financial conservatism. Right. If that comes into to play when I think about why I'm a Republican. Um, but other than that, I mean, I take bits and pieces from all different viewpoints uh, and you know, Democrats alike, I have a lot in common with them as well. So uh, it's unfortunate that Washington, um, the things that are happening in Washington do paint people in uh, broader strokes. Uh, But I think I've set myself apart from that numerous times now. I'll continue to do so. I stand up for what's right. And bipartisanship is, is the way to go. You can't get anything accomplished if you're not working with your partners across the aisle. And we're all about developing relationships for them. This is where we live. Uh, on the phone with us now is the mayor of New Britain, Connecticut, Aaron Stewart. Also uh, joining us from Yale University uh, Studios is Patty Russo, executive director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale. Uh, Patty, I'm curious if we could talk about um, if you want to react to uh, Mayor Stewart's comments and how do you get more young women involved in politics today, Patty? Erin uh, is a stellar example of, um, you know, what happens when you're, you take a risk, you take a calculated, thoughtful risk, you put yourself out there, you run, you win. And she's demonstrated that in spite of her age and her party <laughs> affiliation, that, uh, you know, she's rocking New Britain, you know, that basically she's, uh, she's just, a you know, a, what we talk about is the way in which women lead when they run and win. Women lead differently. We are much more collaborative in our leadership style. Aaron's a perfect example of that. You know, we're more apt to check our ego at the door for the greater good, lift everybody up for the good of, in this, in her case, New Britain. So she really doesn't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. She just wants to get stuff done. And she's about building a coalition, a team of people who want to work with her and collaborate. You know, Susan Collins and Patty Murray years ago were the end of the sequester. Uh, Patty Murray and Susan Collins were uh, our dear friends in the United States Senate. They were on the Finance Committee at the time, and they were going to all these meetings, and all the boys were kind of, you know, pontificating and out talking to the media about how nothing was getting done, and they couldn't reach an agreement. And Susan just went to Patty one night and said, are you as tired as I am about just, you know, going to these meetings, nothing getting done? Will you stay up with me tonight and put a draft together and just put a proposal together? And they stayed up all night putting that draft together. And that proposal that they offered the next morning was the end of the sequester. That's the difference. That's the way in which women work. And that's why we need more women in leadership. Mm -hmm. 
Now, what do you say to women who are independent, who don't want to register with a party, who are, uh, you know, they're fed up with uh, partisan politics in this country? What do you say to those women, Patty? I, I, we deal in political reality at the Women's Campaign School at Yale. It's really difficult. It's really a challenge. Not impossible, but it's really difficult to run and win as an unaffiliated independent person. Uh, that said, I do believe that 2018, women are going to be the story. M- women are going to be the story of the midterms. I think that we're going to see an inordinate number of women running and winning uh, however, the majority of those women, if not all of those women, will be affiliated with a ma- major political party. You mentioned 2018. I should ask uh, Mayor Aaron Stewart, while you're on the line, we have a, a big gubernatorial election uh, coming up. Are you interested in running? <laughs> How did I know this question was coming? Uh, well, I let's say, and I've said it many times, and I, I say it again, I never closed the door on an opportunity. Um, and I think that as women, um, we often do close the doors on, on opportunities for ourselves because um, we oftentimes put ourselves down and think that we're not capable of, of doing it. Um, I will not close the door on, on that option. I won't uh, shut myself out from any opportunity um, to look at an, an ability to run and run statewide and take the work that I've done to New Britain and translate that over to the state. So while I haven't officially made a decision yet, um, I have said that that I will um, sometime around January. <laughs> All right, Mayor Stewart. Well, some, come sometime in January, if you do make that decision, we hope you come back on the show. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I will. <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about women in politics. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Liz is calling from Durham. Liz, you're on the show. Hey, um, I'm Liz from Durham. Thanks for doing this. It's an important subject, and um, we appreciate it. And there's been a lot of positive message, but I would like to talk about the fact that every day is a new horror coming down from Washington. The passing of the tax bill yesterday that attacks Obamacare, the lifting of the ban on big game trophies. It's very, very difficult to keep folks motivated under the best circumstances. A lot of women I'm finding in my Democratic Party here in Durham is a lot of the, the motivating factor is anger and fear. It's exhausting. How do we harness hope for women who want to be in office and just need a little bit of a break from all the trials that we're hearing about in Washington? That's a great question, Liz. I'll let uh, Patty and hopefully Mayor Stewart uh, to chime in as well. Uh, Patty first. Every day in every way, I am inspired. I'm inspired. I I feel that, you know, uh, initially all of the women we saw who were mad and marched uh, and wanted to run are now shifting their energy to thinking, okay, I'm going to run because I want to make a positive difference in, in our world. And I, I believe that with effective mentoring, with women supporting women, that we're able to shift that energy and create uh, a nucleus of support where women will feel inspired in spite of the heaviness of the national climate to, uh, to continue to get out there and uh, to, to, to use their voice for good. New Britain Mayor Aaron Stewart. 
Yeah, and, and I agree with that. You know, banding together, making sure that women are supporting other women, um, and that I think is most important, and that's some work that we can do together um, regardless of, of our, our party. Ensuring that women have a voice at, at the local government level, too, is very, very important. What we do on the local level on a day-to-day basis affects our lives, you know, the, the next day, um, and, and that's important important work that can't stop being done either because we're, we're seeing – um, a lot of the nasties coming from from Washington. Um, I think perhaps being around other uh, women um, make us feel empowered, and and maybe maybe we, some more networking groups or something. You know, getting people women involved to to support each other is a good way to keep that inspiration going. Mm-hmm. This is where we live. We're talking about women in politics after the November 7th elections, where women in Connecticut and across the country gained seats. Now, there's a national campaign to get women interested and prepared. It's called Ready to Run. Joining us by phone now is Gail Alberta, the director of Ready to Run Connecticut. This is an annual program based at Fairfield University. Gail, uh, Gail well, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us about Ready to Run. Ready to Run um, Connecticut is a one-day conference, if you will, that has two different tracks. One is for women who want to seek office in Connecticut. We focus primarily at the state or local level. At the local level, it's where 90% of all of our elected uh, seats are. So we put a big emphasis on, you know, running for your school board, running for town council, um, and positions like that. And then we also have a separate track for women who aren't necessarily wanting to run for office but still want to get engaged and don't know what they really want to do yet. So we look at things like um, how to get a political appointment, sitting on boards and commissions, uh, community activism and engagement, um, issue advocacy, and things along those lines. And they um, attend those workshops. So the women start off all together in the morning and then they're together again at lunch and dinner. Um, and during the day they break off into these workshops that they've chosen to attend based on their interests and their desires to um, engage in our political system. Now, you held your first program last month. What were some of the takeaways, and and who was in attendance? Great questions. Um, We had had double the number of women um, attend that was our target goal, Um, Most of them were under the age of 35. Um, We had a pretty even split uh, with uh, partisanship um, because the program is nonpartisan. Um, So we had about equal number of Republicans and Democrats there um, in attendance. And most of them, uh, we had about half were uh, minority women. Um, And we had some, you know, recent college grads and or soon to be college grads there. So really that younger millennial um, or, you know, generation that is, you know, kind of coming of age, per se, in the political system. Um, So it was it was really good. I was surprised when you said many of them were under 35. What's prompting them to get interested in politics now? You know, I think a lot of it has to do, I, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, you know, interest post-2016 and, you know, kind of like this Donald Trump, um, you know, backlash per se. But I think for a lot of the women that we had in attendance, it really was more about something touched them personally, whether it's, you know, they didn't like how their school was running or they wanted lower property taxes they didn't like, you know, some of the things that were going on at the state and they wanted to make an impact, 
um, you know, I think, you know, uh, Aaron said it really nicely when, you know, the things that happen at the local level impact you the very next day. What happens at the federal level tends to impact you differently and not as immediate. And so they, they had more of this personal experience that, you know, brought them into, into our program. I wanted to take a, a call now. Wendy from Waterbury. Uh, Wendy, you're on the show. Um, thank you so much. Wendy, are you there? Yes, I am. Go ahead. We just have a couple of minutes. Go ahead. Okay, great. Thank you. I am a graduate of the 2017 Women's Campaign School at Yale. Yay, Patty. It was a phenomenal experience. Um, I also ran in 2016 for the House for the 74th District, and I think before and after, after the campaign school, the, the big thing is preparation. And as an African-American female, um, you don't have a legacy of politicians in your family. So the Women's Campaign School brings about that legacy and that sisterhood, um, regardless of the party affiliation, of how to continue to run. So my question is, you know, encouraging um, more minority women to take up a mantra, why are they running? What is your message? And how um, Patty uh, and the Women's Campaign School at Yale does a phenomenal job of doing that. Thank you, Wen. So, Patty, uh, if you want to answer Wendy's question before we head to break. Uh, You know, we really started seeing an influx, a major influx of women of color being interested in attending our school during the first Obama campaign. Uh, Women were taking, women of color were taking time off from school and their jobs uh, to work on Barack Obama's campaign. And then as a result of them kind of you know, loving it and saying, wow, uh, and seeing that this is also could be a possibility for them, uh, started applying to the school in great numbers. And uh, we've, we've built on that. And to Wendy's point, we have created this national and international sisterhood of women uh, who are graduates now of the Women's Campaign School at Yale. So in January, when we start recruiting uh, in earnest for our five-day intensive, I'll send a, an email out to um, our, our, our graduates uh, via our closed Facebook page, and I'll say, okay, uh, time to inspire another woman to, who deserves a seat at our school to attend. And so to Wendy's point about the exemplary preparation they receive, but in in addition to that, you know, we don't let our graduates go. We think the mentoring piece is equally as important as the training piece, because when you are running for office, when you're running a campaign, it can get very lonely. It can get very isolating. And so the ability to be able to share your frustrations and concerns with uh, a, a group of women who get it, who've been there, who've been through the same experience as you've, as you've been, um, has been a very, very effective way to keep women inspired and in the pipeline. Elaine's calling from Farmington. Elaine, go ahead with your question. Uh, actually, not a question, Lucy, a comment. I, I just want to say I'm so proud that the Women's Campaign School exists in our state. And I know uh, Pat Busso for now almost 20 years and up the school. I've been to many of the opening sessions of the school. And I just wanted to speak to Pat leadership. She's been around in politics, women's issues, fundraising, for decades. She is an expert. She really is a go-to person 
uh, like the last uh, caller said, you know, it was a phenomenal experience. And, you know, uh, Pat did uh, mention that international, I just wanted to say it is global. I mean, you know, there's, there's a focus on state, national, local, but also global politics. She gets people from, you know, all around the world, and her graduates really speak to her success story. And lastly, Lucy, I know, you know, you mentioned a lot of young people getting into the game, but older women, too. I mean, you know, look at the ages of men and even women in Congress. A lot of older people, it can be a long career, or maybe it's time, what's next? Uh, I know a lot of, uh, you know, I'm a baby boomer, so I fall into that age range, and I know a lot of people in that range that are really excited about politics as well, and I know uh, Pat embraces them as well. So she's a great leader, great school. If you're interested, I think it's a fabulous opportunity. She's amazing. Well, thank you. thanks, Elaine, for your thank comment. You, Elaine. A lot of love for Patty Russo here. <laughs> it's my political love tribe. That's what I love about Connecticut. It's small and it's fabulous. And I, I feel as if I know everybody because I do know everybody. <laughs> well, I want to thank Patty Russo, executive director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale. She joined us today from the studios of Yale University, New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, we'll tweet out links to the Women's Campaign School uh, at Yale. Patty, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. It was fabulous. Also, New Britain Mayor Aaron Stewart. Thank you, Mayor Stewart. Thank you so much for having me on today. And Gail Alberta, Director of Ready to Run Connecticut. It's an annual program based at Fairfield University. Gail, thanks for your time, and we'll be putting out information about Ready to Run. Also, uh, tweeting it and on our, web, on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Coming up, Thanksgiving's almost here. Are you prepared? Depending on your family tradition, cranberries may or may not be on your grocery list. Now, if you visited Cape Cod, you've probably seen cranberry bogs, but one town in Connecticut used to be known for growing them, too. A well-known Connecticut farm family has been working to bring back that crop to Killingworth, Connecticut. More after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, the prospect of nuclear war. How serious is it? We'll talk to activist and author Dr. Helen Caldicott, who will answer the most pressing nuclear-related questions you may have. We'll also check in with Cato Institute's John Mueller, and we want to hear from you. That's Monday. Now, Thanksgiving is next week. Are you prepared? Cranberries are often on the dinner menu. And in Connecticut, more than a century ago, one town was known for its cranberry bogs. Now there are efforts to bring it back. On the phone with me now is Keith Bishop, co-owner of Bishop's Orchards and proprietor of Killingworth Cranberries. Keith, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I understand that your Killingworth Cranberries is the only bog in Connecticut that's had commercial production, but there was a history way back when. Fill us in. Yeah, Killingworth Cranberries was established by the Everts family back in the late 1800s, and they built the bog in the northern part of Killingworth uh, that consisted of about uh, 25 acres in total. And that uh, family ownership uh, sustained uh, through the 70s, and then production curtailed as the uh, family aged. Uh, They approached me um, back about five, six years ago, wondering if we were interested in carrying on the tradition. Uh, We took a look at it and, for various reasons, um, decided both no and then in 2012 decided to make a plunge ahead to carry on their three-generation tradition to revitalize the production of cranberries 
at that location in Killingworth. Now, I mentioned when people visit the Cape, they may see those cranberry bogs. Why don't we see more commercial cranberry production in Connecticut? What are some of the barriers, Keith? Well, the biggest barrier is the location and the soil type. They require a uh, sandy soil with access to plenty of water, and the Connecticut climate is uh, and topography doesn't allow itself to the sandy soils you see as you head on 195 out to the Cape and that direction. So that's the barrier and the limitation to growing in Connecticut. And how has it been trying to restore this bog and bring it up to speed? Um, it's been a um, strong, uh, steep learning process. Um, sort of knew what you get into with a new business venture uh, and diversity. However, there's always surprises around the corner, so it took me a little bit longer to uh, get my feet planted. Uh, we completely renovated the bog, went through the permitting process, um, pulled out all the old plants that were there, had a cranberry engineer design the new system that fits in with the production needs and water control uh, facilities for production in the 2000s as opposed to what was designed back in the, the 1900s. Uh, replanted the uh, two and a half acres with a new variety that was developed by Rutgers called Scarlet Knight. Um, it's a variety that is plant patented and uh, has royalties on it, so there's higher costs associated with producing that particular berry. But it's a berry designed to be for the retail trade, fresh market production, so large, nice, deep, burgundy-colored berries that uh, go well and more recipes than just cooking up for cranberry sauce, for example. Now, you mentioned the Scarlet Knight. Is that something that you would see in this region if you were to go up to Cape Cod? Why did you pick this specific one? Um, I picked it for the retail characteristics of a fresh market one and what my selling uh, shtick is going to be here with the production of the cranberries here will be for the local market, direct to farm markets such as our Bishop's Orchards in Guilford. Mm-hmm. And once production ramps up, we'll be able to take and wholesale out to other farm markets, potentially farmers' markets, um, and people that are interested in selling local Connecticut diversified farm products. Now, when you're working on your business plan, uh, you did reach out to Cape Cod cranberry growers. Uh, what were some of the lessons you learned from them? Uh, it's the uh, the timing, as in most agricultural things, of what you need to do for production and expertise and making sure that you're working uh, with whatever weather conditions that you're given, uh, from moisture and rainfall to irrigation. For example, one of the upgrades I did, is this has got uh, two and a half acres that's fully sprinklered. We uh, built a farm pond as far as the project to provide that irrigation water so you don't have a lack of providing moisture to the plants when they are in need during the summer growing season, mm-hmm. which that affects the yield if you don't have water to provide size to the fruit at the proper time. Water also provides for a frost protection mechanism in the spring for blossoms to not freeze and in the late fall and early frost to put water on to prevent freezing of the berries that are out there waiting to be harvested. Now, Keith Bishop, again, co-owner of Bishop's Orchards, also proprietor of Killingworth Cranberries. Uh, when can Connecticut uh, residents see uh, your cranberries uh, ready to, to be harvested and, and at the grocery store or at a farmer's market near them? Great question. Uh, the plants actually were planted uh, last July and August. Uh, it's a two- to three-year 
time frame before any significant production is uh, obtained on cranberries, just like other small fruits of blueberries, raspberries, and strawberries. You have a multi-year waiting period for that. It's a long-term capital project. So I expect the first uh, berries to be available for sale next fall, uh, mid-September and on as long as the uh, um, you know, production uh, lasts till we sell out. I mentioned your family farm, Bishop Orchards. Uh, you're known for growing uh, lots of, of uh, fruits uh, and vegetables that we're, we're used to seeing at the farmer's market. Cranberries, you know, most, most people don't see those that are grown here in, in Connecticut. Is it risky to take this on? Um, oh, it's a, um, I guess a comfortable risk. Um, looking at it as far as our continued diversification, trying to meet the consumer demands of both local as well as my passion for having agriculture here in Connecticut continue to survive mm. despite the enormous pressures that uh, farmers face here in the state. Mm. I have to ask, uh, with Thanksgiving around the corner, are, are cranberries on your Thanksgiving table? Of course. <laughs> um, I'll be having the, uh, I harvested a few pounds this year all by hand, which is uh, intensive uh, picking as far as what small size berries and how it is. Uh, it will be machine harvested for our uh, crops coming up. Um, a dry harvest is what we'll be doing for the fresh market as opposed to those wonderful floating berries you see in uh, TV and uh, other pictures in the Cape Cod area that they float the berries and then suck them up with a vacuum to move them into their uh, storage containers. But uh, one of the favorite recipes that I've got is um, having cranberries incorporated into uh, acorn or butternut or winter squash and having uh, cutting that squash in half, whether it's a acorn or a sweet dumpling or a butternut, and then uh, putting some uh, brown sugar in along with that, about a quarter to half cup of cranberries, uh, a little bit of margarine, a uh, touch of brown sugar and some other herbs, That uh, then bake that off alongside your turkey, put it in about an hour before the turkey's done or you're ready to serve it actually, and um, that'll take and have a nice, um, wonderful flavor of cranberries and the squash and it looks great uh, garnished up on the side with some fresh whole cranberries as well. That sounds lovely. Now, have you heard of Mama Stamberg's cranberry relish? I have not. <laughs> it's not for everyone. But, well, we can send you the link if you want. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> I want to thank Keith Bishop, co-owner of Bishop's Orchards, proprietor of Killingworth Cranberries. Uh, starting next year, you may be seeing Killingworth Cranberries um, at your farmer's market. Keith Bishop, thank you so much. Have a lovely Thanksgiving next week. Glad to share the time with you. Thank you very much. Our show today produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to WMPR intern Evan Sobel. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. As always, go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.